What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. All right. That's the way to start church, isn't it? Come on. My name is Josh Walters. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the Long Point campus. I want to welcome you if you're joining us online or in one of the venues or at an off-site campus, whether that's with Seacoast or Crossroads, wherever in the world you happen to be, we are glad that you're here to worship with us. Well, for the last seven weeks, we've been in a series called Rebuild, where we've been walking through the, Nehemiah, walking through the book of Nehemiah. And just to uh, set the table for you a little bit and catch you up on the ground we've covered so far, the book of Nehemiah is about the great city of Jerusalem, and it's laid in ruins for 141 years. Um, the, the walls that protected the city have been torn down. The gates that fortified it have been burned to the ground. And as a result, the people of God have lived in exile in the surrounding regions. Until God would burden the heart of a man named Nehemiah to come up with a plan, to raise up leaders, to create some of the, the strategies and policies and procedures that would be needed to restore the people of God to the city that, they, that God had chosen for them. He would ultimately end up moving to the city after having prayed and fasted and planned, but upon moving there, he would face great opposition and hardship. But in just 52 short days, God would accomplish through him the unthinkable, the unimaginable. The walls would be rebuilt. The city would be fortified and the people of God would be restored. It really is an incredible story. It was an incredible project. Today we're going to be jumping into chapter 7 to see what happened next. But before we do that, let me take just a minute and pray for us. God, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we just want to declare, I want to declare my desperate need for you. God, I'm thankful that your word doesn't return void. So God, I would pray in each of our hearts this morning that you would reap a harvest, that you would do a work inside of us that only you could do. God, I want to pray for those that are walking through difficult times this morning, whatever they might be, Lord, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done in their circumstances, and that in no way, God, would they serve as a distraction to the work that you want to do in our hearts this morning. God, we thank you for this time and humbly ask you uh, to come and move in power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Katie and I had just moved to Charleston. Well, we were about to move to Charleston. I had driven down and actually found the house that, that we would live in while Katie was still working. And a few weeks later, Katie drove down to see that house, and I was home with the kids, at which point she called me to let me know we would not be living in that house. And uh, she then went and found our house and put a deposit down on it. There's probably another message in there somewhere, but we'll keep pressing on. And so... Uh, we, uh, we moved to Charleston, didn't really know anyone here except for Katie's parents, but knew that Seacoast was going to be our home church. And so as we started attending, a few weeks went by, and uh, Seacoast was doing this big Easter production called The Thorn. It was kind of a Cirque du Soleil meets Passion of the Christ, fire, flying people, I mean, just incredible production. And uh, our, our neighbor, come to find out, was the children's pastor here at the Long Point campus, Scott Kenny, And uh, he was real involved in that production, and at the time they were looking for somebody to play Satan. And uh, you know where this is going. And so Scott said, uh, well, hey, my neighbor's unemployed. He doesn't have anything going on. I bet he could, uh, he could do it. And 
Uh, just to know me, I am not theatrical at all. You know, costumes, the whole, it's just not my, not my deal. But my wife loves dancing and our kids could be in it. So we thought, man, maybe this could be something fun that we do as a family. So I come out and I audition for the part and I end up getting it. Okay, and just to give you a, a vision of what the role looked like, I had to shave my head, wear a skirt, and paint my body. Okay, so um, for somebody that's not comfortable with the theater, this was a big step. Okay, and so two or three months go by of rehearsal, two or three nights a week, all of the shows go off. God did an incredible work. 15,000, 16,000 people uh, came through this building to see the production. It was incredible. When it was all over, Pastor Scott asked me, so Josh, what are you going to do now? And uh, the only thing that I knew for sure was I'm not shaving my head and I'm not wearing a skirt. I'm done with those seasons, you know, no more of that. And so he said, well, how would you feel about coming on board here to, uh, to work with children? And I thought, man, that's incredible. What kind of church hires Satan to come and work with their children, you know? Of course, I would love to do that, you know? Well, all the while, as I stepped back from the thorn and stepped into this role, you know, I thought the whole deal was about a production that God was allowing our family to be a part of. But all the while, God was tethering our hearts to the people in it. Over those two or three nights a week for two or three months, some relationships were established that would have taken years to create. The thorn was in reality for our family all about the people and what God was doing and knitting our hearts together. Well, that's exactly where we are in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 7. It's the middle of the book. It's the ending of one project and the beginning of another. Up until this point, we've heard all about the, the resources that it took to build the wall, the people that were involved, and the timeline that it took to build it. And just about the time that the sense of accomplishment would be setting in, and you know how that is, just about the time you finish building the fence in the backyard, you finish painting the house, just about the time you get the kids down at the end of the night or wrap things up at the office and you're getting ready to come home, just about the time accomplishment would set in, God would burden Nehemiah's heart once again. But this time it was to remind him of the purpose of the project, that it was all about the people. See there at the top of your outlines, in Nehemiah's time, God's plan was to love people through a city. God's plan was to love people through the city. I'm reminded of God's words, or Nehemiah's words to God in chapter 1, verse 9, when he reminds him of what he said to his servant Moses. He said, even if your people are at the farthest exile, I will gather them from there and bring them to a city that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. See, the city was called to represent the power of God and, and what only he could do. The city was called to represent the passion and the pursuit of God for his people. Well, in our time, God's plan is to love the city through the church. God's plan is to love the city through the church. Do you realize what that means? It means that you are God's plan. For Somerville, for West Ashley, for Asheville, for any of our seacoast or crossroads campuses, there is no plan B, okay? So take a good look at the people around you. This would be a cue to actually take a good look at the people around you, okay? <laughs> and I see what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, I don't, I don't feel like the plan, you know? I don't think I look like the plan. I know he's not the plan. You know? And listen, I'm the one sitting up here looking at you, and I am just as concerned, okay? But that's the beauty of the church. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Acts 4.13, when the Bible describes the disciples, it talks about them as unschooled, ordinary men. In 2 Corinthians 12.9, we read that it's only in our weakness that God's power is made perfect, okay? So catch a glimpse of this. God has called sinful, ordinary, weak people. 
that are dependent on him to have any power to be the catalyst for life change in our communities. We, the local church, are the hope of the world. God has tasked you and I with representing him to our neighbors, to those in our community that may be far from him, that we would convey his love and passion and pursuit for them. In fact, the city that we read about in the book of Nehemiah is meant to be a picture of our church today. The city was a place that was chosen by God for his people. The church is a place that is chosen by God for his people. The city was a place where those who were far from God in exile even to the farthest horizon could come. The church is a place where those who are far from God can come. People who don't look like or talk like or act like believers can come and find a people that will love them and care for them and show them what it looks like to live for and know and walk with God. The city was a place where people served and loved and sacrificed for one another. The church is a place where we serve and love and sacrifice for one another. So if we are God's plan, if the church is his plan to love the city, to love the world, then what do we need to know? What things do we need to remember in order to do that well? Three things for us I think today we can take from Nehemiah chapter 7. The first of which is that we have to remember that people matter to God. We have to remember that people matter to God. Step away a little bit from the storyline. For the last seven weeks, we've been talking about this wall, and you have a good idea of the story, but pull away from the details of it a little bit to look at the heart of God, okay? The passionate pursuit, the incredible love that he had for his people. Okay, so we have Nehemiah, who is a cupbearer to the king. He's a wine taster. He's got a good thing going. He would hear about a people that he's never met in a place that he has never been, and it would so grip his heart that he was compelled to act. He had to do something about it. He was willing to walk away from everything that he was doing. Have you ever had a moment like that? A moment where you, you hear about an injustice in the world or a family in need in our community or, or somebody that's walking through something and, and it just grabs your heart to where you have to act? Well, this is the work that God was doing in Nehemiah's heart. Okay, at the same time, God was preparing the king's heart because Nehemiah was going to come to him and not just ask for a small favor. You know, would you grant me the resources, the, the time, the ability? I mean, we're talking like, listen, boss, I'm going to need about three months off, you know, paid. Would you help me out here? It was a big ask, and God was preparing the king to give him all the favor and blessing that he was going to need. All the while, God was stirring the hearts of thousands of people, fathers and mothers and sons and daughters, to come back to a city that lay in ruins so that they would have a hand in rebuilding it, so the people of God would have a place to come home. People matter to God. You know, today, before we jump into this passage, some of you may be hurting. And if there's anything that you need to hear today, it's that you matter to God. And man, in whatever it is that you're walking through, if you will hold fast and cling to him and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, not only will he build into you a testimony of his, his faithfulness, his great love, his ability to make a way when there is no way in your life. But weeks from now, months from now, years from now, he's going to use you to minister to others who are walking through that very same thing. The Bible tells us that we comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. So man, hold to him and he will meet you there. You matter to him. So look with me in chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. This is what it says. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people living in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the walters. For <laughs> the common people. For registration by families. Okay, so God had burdened Nehemiah's heart once again, but this time it was for the people. 
He was essentially going to be building the, the Jerusalem phone book, okay? And it was not by cattle call or mass invite or email blast. He said, I want to know the names of every family. I want to know the number of people in their families. Look at the list, starting in verse 6. It says this. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in the company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvay, Nahum, and Benah. The list of the men of Israel included the descendants of Parash, 2,172, of Shephatiah, 372, of Ara, 652, of Pehath Moheb, 2,818. I'm like, come on. That's a big family. At our house, we stop doing gifts for adults on Christmas and just get gifts for the kids. Man, 2,818 kids, you don't do gifts. You say, y'all come on around. We're going to sing a song to mama. Let's, get, let's sing a song. It's a lot of kids. Of Elam, 1,254. And the list goes on and on and on. People matter to God. Man, it hurts my heart that I have to be reminded of that. You know, I think all of us would probably say, of course, people matter to me. You know, but oftentimes in each of our lives, the people that matter to us are just that. They're the people that matter to us. Our family, our friends, people in our relational circle. But the reality is to God, every single one of these people matter. And just as he knew every single one of Elam's 1,254 descendants and he was preparing a place for them, He's preparing a place for you here in the local church to find a community of believers that you can walk through life with, that'll rally around you in your times of need, folks who will pray for and love on and encourage and support you. If we're going to be a church who loves our city, then each of us have to be committed to being a person who loves people. This is going to require sacrifice that we may not have anticipated making. It's going to require time that we may not feel like we have. It's going to require us to be intentional to take initiative, to look for people in need who are hurting, who are unlovable, the lonely, the fatherless. Many of you here at Seacoast and at Crossroads have chosen to, to live your life that way. But there's one couple in particular here at the Long Point campus that comes to mind. Their names are Stephen and Laura Lewis. For years here at the church, they were small group leaders and then small group coaches until finally, because of the work God was doing in their life, they just didn't feel like they had the margin to continue leading. So they came and met with Pastor Jerry and talked with him, they were actually feeling called to adopt. And man, the amount of work that it was taken to do it was just more than they could handle. And so as they talked about it, Pastor Jerry challenged them, but what if instead of stepping away from leadership, you were to just refocus this love and passion for a people group that matter and build a community around that that could resource and encourage and, and support one another. And this is what happened. It was 
over the top, amazing, incredible. Um, it's something that I don't think any of us will ever forget. It, um, it was, it was a completion. It was 16 months of paperwork and home visits and worry and waiting and trusting and faith in God and uh, there's excitement, there's, there's an element of sadness to it as well. There's a finality, but there's also an amazing beginning to it. And it was just this culmination of just 16 months of just pure joy wrapped up in this little two-year-old package from Uganda, Africa. Just in that moment, it just all came together and it was beyond amazing. With adoption, uh, having a group of people that speak adoption language uh, really is huge. It's comforting. Uh, they understand what you're talking about when you say home study and I-400 and getting your biometric fingerprints done. They know exactly what you're talking about. There's no explanation needed. journey together, we really um, strive to create community, um, community for not only the parents, but also the children. Um, we really want the children to feel like they have other children that have come from all, all parts of the world and uh, that uh, um, they're not really any different than anybody else. We have monthly events, events where we just have a meeting where people can come together. We also have um, events throughout the year where we may just have a, a beach party. Um, or a cookout at the park, or we have a big oyster roast every year, and it just creates that opportunity for families and children um, to come together and experience um, the, the gift of adoption together. We talk about the messy stuff. We talk about how hard adoption can be. Uh, we talk about how joyous adoption can be and everything in between. Uh, just sitting down having coffee with someone, when you've had a rough day the day before, or a rough week, uh, just having somebody to talk life out with is, uh, I think, just the best way to say what we do. We do life together. We support each other, and it's, uh, it's a great support. They're great people. Yeah. Laura said that there was an element of sadness to it, a finality, but that there was also an amazing beginning. You think about the book of Nehemiah, having spent 52 days in the rebuilding of the wall. You know, you can imagine the sense of finality, the sadness that, man, this thing is over. But in reality, it was just the beginning. And the same was the case for the Lewis family. They had spent 16 months thinking that for them, it was about this adoption. Only at the end of it to see that God had a story that he was writing that was much bigger than just their family. And now dozens all over our community and churches all around the state, all across the country are reaching out to them to say, man, what is it that, that God is doing there? Tell us about Journey Together. You know, you may not be called to adoption. Your call might just be to have coffee with your neighbor. You know, but the problem is that you don't know your neighbor. Or maybe you do know your neighbor and you don't like your neighbor, you know, <laughs> or, or you just don't feel like you have the time. Or whatever the case, the, the reality is for them is they may be walking through a brutal divorce. Or maybe they've been unemployed and are very discouraged. Or maybe they've been battling a sickness. And God has commissioned you. He's anointed and called you to go and represent him. To be his ambassador. To communicate to them his great love and passion and pursuit for them. People matter to God. 
Second thing that we're going to have to do if we're going to love our city is to remember that everyone has an assignment. Remember that everyone has an assignment. Nehemiah's assignment began as serving as a cupbearer to the king. Okay, he was the wine taster. But note the difference between his current position and his future purpose. God had blessed his servant heart, his good attitude, and his good stewardship of the season that he had been in to grant him the favor and blessings and resources that he was going to need that he never would have imagined to do something that he had never done. You may be in a season of life where you don't see light at the end of the tunnel. You know, maybe you just graduated with a degree that you thought for sure would land you a good job, but you're just having a hard time finding one. Maybe the business that you've launched isn't turning out how, how you hoped it would. Well, whatever the case, whatever circumstances or situations that you're walking through, God's ability to work in and through us depends on the posture of our heart and the stewardship of the season that he has us in, not the reality of our current circumstances. Since Nehemiah had faithfully served as cupbearer when God had called him to something else, there was favor and blessing and resources that would be there for him. That's why Colossians 3.23 says, Obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as though you were working for the Lord and not for men. This story begins because a man who had an assignment faithfully served. He took on the posture of a servant, and in God's perfect timing, he called him to a new project, a new assignment. This was no different for the people of God who had lived in exile. In Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7, we see that God gave them an assignment as well. This is what it says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughter. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The people of God had been faithful, though living in exile and far from home, been faithful to do what God had called them to, taking on the, the posture of a servant, stewarding well the seasons of life that God had had him in, and now he was calling them to a new assignment. Look at some of their roles. In verse 5, it tells us that there were nobles, officials, and common people. Verse 44 tells us about the singers. Verse 45 tells us about the gatekeepers. Verse 46 tells us about the temple servants. God had uniquely wired and gifted and equipped each of them to take on an assignment, to take on a role that he had for them. If we're going to love our city, we have to remember that everyone has an assignment. Some of the strongest leaders here in our church, some of the most faithful ushers and greeters and nursery workers, maybe sitting here listening to this message and delaying a future assignment that God may have for them because they've yet to step in to the assignment that God has for them today. In fact, some of the strongest leaders in the future of our church may not even be believers yet because our assignment is to take them out to coffee or to reach out to them to go and be the hands and feet of Christ. So the question for us then is, how do I know what my assignment is? What does God have for me? A few things there on your outline sheet. The first of which is that passion tells you who. Passion could be a good indicator of who it is that God may be calling you to go and minister to, to be on mission with. You know, for Nehemiah, those people were obvious. He heard about the people of God in Jerusalem, and it gripped his heart. I mean, his heart broke for him. With the folks in Journey Together, they hear about a people in the, the fields of the fatherless, orphan, adoption, foster care, and man, they're willing to rewrite their stories forever. 
change the, the fabric of their family because they feel called to go and be a solution to the problem. Maybe you remember what it's like to be a stay-at-home mom, and you see some other moms that are doing that now, and you just feel called to, to pray for and love on and encourage them. Or maybe you're a student who's passionate about skateboarding. Man, God may be calling you to be on mission at the skate park. Whatever the case, passion is a good indicator of who the people might be. Secondly, makeup tells you how. Makeup tells you how. As we look at the people in this passage, and really all throughout Scripture, we see them loosely kind of associated into three categories. There's the heads, the hands, and the hearts. The heads are the leaders. This is uh, similar to Nehemiah. These are the people who are coming up, coming up with the, the systems and policies and procedures needed to rebuild a great place. They're coming up with strategies to decide when do we make a move and how do we do it. Then there's the hands, and these are the folks that want to just jump in and get something going. They probably get a little frustrated by all the heads talking and planning and strategizing. They just want to jump in and do something, start something, break something, anything, you know. Just give me a chance to get going. I'm ready to get some work done. Okay, and then there's the hearts. And these are the people that are really concerned for the heads and the hands. These are the folks that think, gosh, I think they're working too hard. I don't think they've stopped for lunch. I'm going to make them some food. You know, it's cold. I'm going to knit them a sweater. Will you pray for them? Let's pray together. How about that? How many of you would say that you're the hands? A few folks going like this. That's me. <laughs> we thank God for you. But we see all of them. Can you imagine a city that was all heads? Man, they would strategize all day long and never get any work done. Or they would start things and not be concerned at all for the people and it would go awful. Or if there were all hands, man, they would stay busy all the time. But busyness does not equate to godliness. You know, they'd probably run down a lot of the wrong trails. Or if we had a city full of hearts, man, they would love on each other, encourage and support each other, but they'd probably never get anything done, you know? <laughs> a city requires all three, and so does the church. Take a look at your makeup. Which of those categories do you fall in? Third is gifting. Gifting tells you what, as we read through Nehemiah 7, who do you think God called to be the singers? Probably the people that he gifted to sing, you know? A lot of you would say, well, I think I'm a gifted singer. And the problem there is that your mama is the only one that's ever told you that, okay? <laughs> God equips the called. He gives you the, the gifts you need to accomplish the task that he's called you to. So a good place to start is be by taking an inventory. Okay, God, how have you gifted me? What are my gifts? Number four there is availability. Availability tells you when, but availability oftentimes can be deceiving, you know, clearly there's seasons of our lives when we're, we're more or less available. If you've just had a child or maybe you're, you're taking a full load of classes in school or if you're working multiple shifts, you know, obviously there's times in our lives when we're not available. But oftentimes I've observed that fulfilling God's assignment for me is more about my attentionality than my availability. And man, my wife is the best example of this for me. She radically multiplies the serve and mission quotient in our home. Every year on Mother's Day, she'll dress our boys up in little tuxes and go by the grocery store, get a ton of single roses, and she'll go around uh, the city and deliver roses to single moms that she knows. Last year on Halloween, she put all the uh, uh, candy into little bags and stapled a piece of paper to it that said, have you been spooked out by church? You know, check out Seacoast. I'm like, who thinks of this? You know, it's wild. Once a month, she'll, she'll go to bed at like 7 o'clock with our girls who are 7 and 8, and they'll go downtown at like 4 o'clock in the morning to Crisis Ministries and serve breakfast. You know, if anybody has the reason to be running late or not put together or missing appointments, it's her. She works 10 hours a week here at the church on our pastoral care team, and she's a stay-at-home mom to five kids, you know, but she's intentional to what she feels like God's called her to. Then lastly there, number five, need trumps everything. 
Need trumps everything. You know, sometimes the cause is more important than the call. There are times when the need in our country, such as Hurricane Sandy, reshifts our priorities. This is true on a global, on a national, on a local level. You know, perhaps you've had a child recently, and man, you feel called to serve, uh, or maybe you just feel called to clean your house, you know, but the reality is you need to sleep. Well, the same is true when you survey the local church. Oftentimes, if you don't know what assignment God might have for you, a great place to jump in would just be by asking, where is there a need? You know, where could I get involved? The best way to discover what assignment God might have for you here at Seacoast is through the inside track. It's a four-week process where you'll come away with a lot of the, the knowledge and resources and relationships that you need to take your next step. In week one, you'll meet a lot of people who are on a similar journey, some that have been here for two weeks and some that have been here for 10 years, you know, but they're saying, hey, I want to figure out what would it look like to become a member or join a small group or, or find a serve team. In week two of the Inside Track, we hear more about the vision and DNA of Seacoast. Our mission is to become fully devoted followers of Christ, to help people do that. What does that look like at Seacoast? What does it mean to, to make a disciple? We hear, what are the things that are unique to Seacoast? How does that work? Then in week three, we take a closer look at, at you. How is God uniquely wired and gifted and skilled you? What are your, your life experiences, your passions? What are the things that just grip your heart? Then in week four, we put all that together. Once you've had a chance to learn about the church and take a closer look at how God's wired you, we give you some opportunities that you could take your next step through things that, that we're doing here at the church or maybe opportunities God may be calling you to step into. Lastly, if we're gonna love our city, number three, we have to remember to give like it's going in the Bible. <laughs> remember to give like it's going in the Bible. This is probably a good, you know, uh, kind of idea to live by, period. Remember to parent like it's going in the Bible. If you knew that your actions and behavior were going to be written in the Word of God for all of eternity to read, if you're anything like me, it would probably change some of your uh, behaviors and attitudes pretty quickly. <laughs> for me, I think about parenting. I have a little bit of a hard time getting up in the morning. And so uh, my kids will wake up and run down way too early. Daddy, will you help us make some cereal? I could read scripture now, you know. Then his children ran into the pantry, began ripping open the cereal boxes themselves. Daddy, will you come help us now? But Daddy was still sleeping. <laughs> Daddy, will you open the wall? You know, it's just, it's awful. It would probably change a lot about me very quickly. Look at what the people gave in verses 70 and 72. So some of the heads of families contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand drachmas of gold, 50 bowls, that would be for the cereal in our pantry, <laughs> 530 garments for the priests. Some of the heads of families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 drachmas of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. The total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 drachmas of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 garments for the priests. It's important to note here that it wasn't the size of the gift that mattered that completed the project, but the generosity of all that got the work done. This passage tells us that some of the heads of the home, head of homes, gave 20,000 drachmas. Some single families gave that much. And yet the total of all the other people combined was 20,000 drachmas. This truth is reflected in Luke 21, 1 through 4 in the story of the widow's offering. It says this, As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins, I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All of these people gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and put in all she had to live on. What Jesus was commending and what we read here in the book of Nehemiah is though the amount of the gift isn't equal to all, 
The call to sacrifice and generosity is one that we're all called to walk in. I've heard it said that you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. So if we're going to be a a church that loves our city, and that's every city where we have a a seacoast or a crossroads campus, then we have to be willing to go with God on a journey of generosity to see how how could he cultivate in me a heart that gives back, a heart of generosity. In week three of the Inside Track, we talk about this, several different ways that you could give. The first way is to just give something. Say, God, I want to pray that you'll start to cultivate this in me, so I'm just going to give something that I have on me, but I'm going to do it as a sacrificial gift, as a seed, and pray that you would use it to cultivate in me that gift. The second step that you could take is to give proportionately. This requires a little more planning and intentionality on your part, that it's not just going to be a one-time gift, but, but God, I want to start giving to you regularly. So I'm going to look at my budget. I'm going to look at what I have, and I'm going to give a percentage. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says that each man should give in, um, Each man should give what in his heart he has decided to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Remembering here for you, it's not about the size of the gift. It's about what it's symbolic of, asking God to cultivate in you a spirit of generosity. The third step is to give the tithe. Tithe there literally meaning one-tenth or 10%. This is the standard that God calls us to throughout Scripture. In Malachi 3.10, it's one of my favorite passages. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you won't have enough room for it. Have you ever asked somebody to test you? <laughs> like, try, try me. You know, <laughs> it's like oftentimes our threats, our test me, try me can feel a little empty. One day I was putting our kids in the car, and uh, normally they are incredible kids, super sweet. You know, oftentimes they'll, they'll go more towards a side of a continuum of childish and, childishness and, and anarchy, but usually they're incredibly sweet. And this one time in particular, I was putting them in the car, I had opened up the back, and I was putting the stroller in, and my eight-year-old just started crying, Daddy, you know, what, what happened? Abigail spit in my hair, you know, and they were all dressed and like spitting in the car, you know, I was just so angry, so in not one of my highlight moments of parenting. I said, uh, Abigail, if you ever spit in anyone's hair again, you'll get a reminder so bad you will never spit again. You know? And all the kids' faces are like, oh. You know? And then they look at me, and then they look at each other, and then they all just erupt in laughter. And I'm thinking, anarchy. You know, like, what is the deal? And Aunt Jay turns to me and says, Daddy, that, that, that's not possible. You know? I was like, okay, that's an empty one. I, I, I can't do that. You're right. What I love in this passage is he says, test me in this. And then it doesn't say, says Father God. Or test me in this, says our faithful friend. It says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. The one who is above all. The one who can part the waters. Who can raise the the dead and give them life. Who can make a way when there is no way. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. You know, for some of you, if, you're, if you feel like God's stirring your heart, calling you to step out into a journey of generosity, this is where I would challenge you to start. It is about the heart that he cultivates in you, but my testimony for, for me and my family is that to start at his standard because blessing follows obedience. For some of you, you may be giving the tithe, but for you, that's just not sacrificial. For some of you, God has so blessed you with resources that you're called to take the fourth step, and that's to give being led by the Holy Spirit. 
Give being led by the Holy Spirit. I met with a guy this week, and his question to me was, I I make so much money. We tithe, and I give regularly, but I'm feeling guilty not knowing what to do with this money. So my first question was, well, how would you feel about adopting a cute 30-year-old boy from Mount Pleasant? You know? <laughs> or my next question was, what do you do and do they need more people? You know, are you kidding me? That's incredible. But what I saw in him was a heart that held all of his resources open-handed. From his finances to his stuff, at no point did he close his fist to say, oh, God, I can't give away that. Or no, they can't have that. He realized that he was not storing up for himself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. But everything that he had was a gift from God. And the posture of his heart is to steward it well. So he was asking, what, what do I do with this money? After tithing and giving, I said, man, the next step for you is to pray and, and give through being led by the Holy Spirit. Every time you tithe or give to someone in the community, you need to pray and ask, God, I believe you called me to be sacrificial with your resources here. How, where, when would you have me give? What we see in the book of Nehemiah is that it costs a lot of money to build a city that loves people. Well, in the same way, it costs a lot of money to build a a church that loves our city. It costs a lot of money to plant campuses in growing communities where there's thousands of people who are far from God. It costs a lot of money to host community events here at the church like the Luke 14 dinner where hundreds of special needs families can come here and be loved on and encouraged and supported. It costs a lot of money to partner with community partners who are doing incredible things to help the hurting and the homeless. It costs a lot of money to build buildings where the church can gather to celebrate an awesome God and invite their friends who are far from him. If we're gonna be a church that loves our city, if I'm gonna be a person who loves people, then I have to give like it's going in the Bible. Would it change anything about the way that you live your life if you really believed that you were God's plan to love our city? If you were to walk out of your your worship experience, wherever you happen to be, and kind of survey the people, could you look at them with eyes that sincerely believe that they really matter to God? As you think about the people that you know that are far from him, as you see and hear and get to know folks that you realize just, just don't know the Lord, Can you look at them with the kind of faith that could acknowledge that God even has an assignment for them? Would you be willing to walk with God on a journey of generosity, asking him to begin to allow you to open your hands to everything that he's given you, that you would be found to steward it well? Church, we are his plan. You are his plan. I am his plan to love our city well. And if we're going to do that, we have to be willing to acknowledge that people matter to God, that he has an assignment for every single one of us. And we have to be willing to give like it's going in the Bible. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much uh, for this time, God. And I praise you for the simple truth that, that I matter to you. God, that everyone hearing this message matters to you. God, and I pray for those today that need to hear that truth, maybe for the first time. God, I pray that through the power of your spirit working uh, in our hearts and in this place, Lord, that we would possibly today step into a relationship with you for the first time. God, I pray for those here that that know the assignment that you have for them, but for whatever reason, for time or just not seeing a way that they could possibly build a wall when they're not even a builder and they've never done anything that huge, God, that they would be encouraged by this story to see your ability to go before Nehemiah and, and, and see you rebuild the wall, to see you provide the resources, to see you do the impossible. God, there are kingdom assignments you have for our church. God, may you give us the boldness today to walk in them. 
God, for some of us today, our, our resources have gotten a little too close to our hearts. God, I pray that you would open our, our hands, open our hearts to all that you've given us. Allow us to be found good stewards. Lord, I pray that you would work mightily here in the house and at all of our campuses today. In Jesus' name, amen.